Hello everyone, welcome to another great episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother Danny, and I'm here with none other than my big brother Sean, and we're going to be talking about another horror movie today. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Is that what we're doing today? That is what we're doing today. Same thing as always. Not only are we discussing another movie today, but it's our first movie in the month of October. Yeah, so happy October, everyone. Let's start it off right with a classic. Hope everyone can get in the horror mood for October. Yeah, I'm not sure what everyone's uh, festivities are for the month. I know I've been a year-round horror watcher for decades. Before we started doing this podcast, how much of a year-round horror watcher were you, Danny? Uh, Not much at all. Like, I mean, I was pretty scared of horror movies as a kid. I would always just hate watching it. Anything horror-related, I just did not want to watch. I hated seeing blood. Hated seeing gore. Hating being, hated being scared, you know. I hated going to haunted houses. You or dad would always try to drag me to go to a haunted house, and I would just hate it. I would not want to be there. But in recent years, of course, I've grown to love horror as I got older. And I really love the holiday season. I've always loved Halloween, but, you know, horror is just... Which is weird to me, I guess. Because I always hated being scared and horror, but I always loved dressing up and going trick-or-treating. <laughs> But uh, no, last year started watching a lot of movies with friends during October, and I'm going to start doing that again. I've been encouraging them to watch the Fraternity films with me, which is cool. And yeah, I'm excited to watch more films this October and have a reason to do it, you know, doing this show with you. That's great. Yeah, you know, despite being a year-round horror movie watcher for three decades now, there is still something special about the month of October and watching your horror films leading up to Halloween. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening do the same thing. And it's just an honor to be a part of your October horror movie watching traditions now. So without further ado, let me introduce the movie we're going to be presenting for you today. You know, we're going to be discussing none other than George Romero's Day of the Dead. And it's kind of been going without saying lately, but this is a perfect time to reiterate the fact that we are not a behind-the-scenes podcast. I think this movie suffered a lot due to all the money issues relating to rating squabbles and with the studio. There were rewrites, and a lot of people got a hold of some of the scripts and really judged this movie more for what it isn't than what it is. And I firmly believe, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, Danny, that art should always be judged by what it is and never for what it isn't. And just know that we will never do that here. Yeah, I firmly believe in taking a movie for what it is and what it does and asking yourself, what is this movie trying to say? Rather than what isn't this movie saying, I think you should really just look at a film and get all of the behind the scenes things, you know, put that on the backseat and just enjoy the film that's in front of you and if you don't like it that's fine but if you do you know try to find why you like it and why what you're seeing is special to you so yeah i firmly believe that you should take the movie as it is and not what it could be or what it should be because i just often think that leads to a lot of expectations and disappointment the less expectations you can put on yourself for anything i think is is for the better yeah and another thing our audience should know by now is that We are not a review podcast either. We are a celebration of horror on screen. 
and we do that with our mix of fond memories and fresh perspectives. So, speaking of fond memories, this is the first movie in our podcast canon that you have actually seen, right? Yeah, I've seen this movie. It's been about like six or seven years. Like the last time I saw it, I only saw it once, and that was when I watched it with you back in 2013. We would, uh, you know, we were both living with our parents at the time, and we always had this kind of ritual that we would wait until they went to bed, and then you would take me in your room. And you would either say, pick a movie, or you would maybe pick a couple out and say, like, pick one of these that you want to watch. And this was kind of at the beginning of your Blu-ray collection, I think, right? Is That was about the time when all the companies were starting to release these special Blu-rays for the horror scene. Yeah, I was just starting to really get my hands on some Scream Factory titles. And yeah, I do remember that I would have you come in and pick out a movie or try to lead you towards something i might have been craving a watch of yeah and we would watch it it'd be late into the night we'd go to the living room turn all the lights out and we would watch a movie and we would discuss it and those are some very fond memories you know i I really loved doing that with you and i and we still do it like you know i'm in california right now but i visit home for the holidays and we still do that you know we still wait until our parents go to sleep and we'll pick a movie and we'll watch it really love doing that with you and i'm glad that we can turn that into kind of the show you know that's kind of the basis for this show or or rather the genesis yeah that's a good way of putting it for me i rented day of the dead around the age of 12 and everyone's familiar with zombies but i want to say that this was the first zombie film that i actually rented and checked out i was still a beginner when it came to horror at this point I really had no idea that Night, Dawn, and Day were part of a collective of movies. I just saw Day of the Dead and the box art on that one attracted me the most. I liked the promo shots on the back and it just read the most interesting to me. And if I'm being honest, even today, I think this is my favorite George Romero zombie film. And it isn't nostalgia. It's just I really love this movie. And I've seen countless zombie films at this point. And this one just, I always come back around to Day of the Dead. I think it's an all-time classic. Just a great film. I've collected it through the years. I remember I bought it brand new on VHS. Then when I was doing my mom and pop VHS horror collection, I was able to find the old media release of it. Anchor Bay released a fantastic digibook dvd of it that had again like i've said before i didn't collect dvds just things i really loved and things that i thought would be the last time i would need to buy this little did i know blu-ray was coming in a few years but the dvd of day of the dead was really cool it had like it was a digipack and it had a 3d image of bub that kind of locked everything into place that i thought was really great and then yeah eventually it led all the way up to Scream Factory's release of Day of the Dead, which we shared that experience of watching. This was the first Romero movie that I had seen, too. You know, I didn't watch Dawn of the Dead until just last year, actually. That was my first time watching it. And I really liked I really liked Dawn. I still haven't seen Night of the Living Dead. But Day of the Dead, when, after we watched it, it always stuck with me for some reason. Like, it's always it's still been in my head over all these years. 
And I'm really glad that we get to talk about it now and that I get to talk about it and, and express my love because much like you, like, yeah, I really think this is a classic and definitely one of my favorite movies of all time, for sure. Like, not just horror, but overall, like, I really love this movie just to get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, Dawn of the Dead is great. Like, I think at worst I would put Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead as equals, but something in Day of the Dead just tips the scales where Dawn is fun day is a pretty bleak film film but it touches on a lot of fascinating questions related to a zombie outbreak in my opinion i really like the point in the outbreak that the story takes place the narrative of the film itself has a very clear beginning middle and end but we are dropped into the film like towards the end of the situation at hand you know despite there being an arc it's all just right there at the cusp of the worst things happening yeah the movie kind of starts at the beginning of the end you know everyone's already on edge and that's a huge theme of the movie for sure and yeah there's just something special about day of the dead to me that i really love i also want to let the audience know that you know we always end our podcast with our favorite kills and favorite scenes and today we're going to be adding a new subject. We're going to be doing our top three zombies in the movie. Danny and I have not collaborated on this, so it's a mystery as to what him and I picked. And we're looking forward to seeing what each other picked and looking forward to share it with you. So after the film discussion, stay tuned for that. I'm really excited to hear your list and share my list with you because... There's a ton of zombies in this movie, and the best thing about the zombies is that, like, they are so unique, you know? They're not just thrown together, like, and that's a reason that I think this film is iconic. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, and I just wanted to say, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is at Fraternity, and you can send us an email at Fraternity at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or anything. So give us, give us a follow, give us some likes. Yeah, we love hearing from you, so hit us up whenever, wherever. And with that, you ready to get started? I'm ready. Let's get into it. All right, man. So we open up with a scene with Sarah, our main character. She's just sitting in a room. And this room can almost be interpreted as a cell because you never see a door. And there's really nothing else in this room except the calendar. And you know, this is a fitting movie to start our October festivities with, because if the calendar's to believed, our story takes place on October 31st. So Sarah approaches the calendar on the wall, and then we get this excellent jump scare of just a bunch of zombie hands bursting through the bricks. Less than a minute in, and we've already got an iconic scene, iconic shot, because before I saw this movie, I already knew of this shot from hearing people talk about it. And I really love this scene. Yeah, I love that it's she's focused on the calendar. She's just like longing for the old world, you know, so you know whatever Sarah's dealing with. It's really taking a heavy toll on her, as we'll see as she continues to have more and more dreams as the film goes on. Yeah, so Sarah wakes up from the nightmare and she's in a helicopter in flight. And the first person we see is a distraught soldier who we'll learn is actually Sarah's boyfriend named Miguel. He's clutching his religious jewelry and clearly isn't well and then we're introduced to two of our main characters we've got bill mcdermott he's a heavy drinking communications guy and he's trying to get anybody to respond on the radio he also has a penchant 
for using the phrase Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And then we have John, our chopper pilot. So I thought this was interesting. They're, they're traveling the coast. They're attempting to raise anybody on the comms. And they're near a big city. So Sarah wants to touch down and try through a bullhorn. And Bill hates the idea. But John obliges but lets her know he's leaving the engine running, not leaving the chopper. And he's going up at the first sign of trouble. Yeah, you get a, a real sense of the hopelessness of the situation they're at because yeah there's nobody in sight nobody's hopeful at all that they're gonna reach contact with anybody and yeah i really like this cast of characters they're all really they're all likable in their own way but they're also all damaged in their own way yeah they're all they're all very fun to watch and interact with yeah i thought this was an interesting scene too because it is so late in this apocalypse that I almost question why they were even doing this. But regardless, we get an excellent sequence where Miguel and Sarah are on the main drag of this deserted city and they're bullhorning, just trying to raise anybody. And all they manage to raise is the dead. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, the zombies are almost, you know, they're not even awake, really. They're just, they're not, they don't become awake and aware of the situation until they hear Miguel you know screaming at them and it's like they're just like waiting and waiting for something to happen like you know they're almost bored you know there's no zombies around until you know they they hear the next meal yeah they're pretty dormant we get excellent shots of the deserted city I love the shot of the money on the ground like really emphasizing like you know the time of money has passed and we are in a survival situation you know no one no one would care about that money that's just flying on the floor it's all about survival now and what you can do it's it's all about getting to the next day and you know that that shot says a lot yeah nature is creeping upon the city with the alligator on the steps of the bank and we get this excellent creeping zombie known as Dr. Tongue, right as the titles hit the screen. Just, he's had a shotgun blast or something, take off most of his jaw, and his tongue is hanging down. And he's the first glimpse of a zombie we get, and he really sets the mood, I think. Yeah, he's great. Any any sort of special effects with, like, that has to deal with, like, facial loss (laughs) is always a favorite of mine. But yeah, I love when he walks up and then you get the title card. So more and more zombies are starting to shuffle towards Sarah and Miguel, and we cut to John and Bill in the chopper, and Bill is still trying to raise anyone, and John makes the point, like, don't bother, it's a dead city like all the rest, because you can actually hear the groans of the zombie over the engine of the helicopter, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it's so overrun that they're louder than a helicopter. And John, he very much is a realist and it's just like there's no way there's anybody here this is just a waste of time yeah i really like the mix of zombies we get to in this movie like you have the really decayed ones which like dr tongue and a few others that really show off the special effects in this movie you still have some blue ones kind of like holdovers from dawn and I appreciated that. And then even at this late stage, you still have freshies walking about. I noticed a few that look like maybe survivors who almost made it and just didn't. And they're still kind of fresh. Did you notice that? I actually didn't notice that. I'll have to watch again. Yeah, I really do like the mix of zombies, too. It's uh, yeah, it, it covers all bases because you can't have all these 
super special unique zombies like like Dr. Tongue. But I think the blue ones are cool too because like I said, they really look like almost confused and dazed in a way. Like there's some humanity almost left in their eyes, which I think, you know, later is going to end up being kind of a major theme of the of the film is like what makes a human is a zombie still a human and what, you know, what is humanity as a concept. So yeah, really cool. The imagery really lines up with the themes of the film. So Miguel takes off running and it's obvious that this little mission is a failure. So the group returns to base, which is an underground bunker and massive cave system used for like governmental storage. And as the chopper's returning, we meet two soldiers who aren't super integral. It's Johnson and Torres. And they're up there drinking beer, gazing at porn, and growing marijuana. You know, things you do during the zombie apocalypse, right? Kill, killing time any way they can. Yeah, you gotta make the best of a bad situation, I guess. And everybody starts getting out of the chopper, and Sarah turns, and Miguel is still sitting there, and they have a little spat here. Yeah, Miguel is obviously going through a lot. Like, he's emotionally distant, he's clearly got some PTSD. And Sarah tries to help him, but Miguel kind of chastises her, you know, like, you're so strong, you know, you're so much better than me. But Miguel refuses her help, like, he doesn't want to admit the help, like, that he really needs the help. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, and I kind of wanted to discuss Sarah here a little bit, because honestly, she's not the most likable main character here at first. And it's because she does really push her weight around and show strength. And you got to think, like, she's the only woman in not only a world full of zombies, but she's in this world full of men now. So she very much keeps, like, her emotions and things in check. And I think it's an interesting character trait. And we'll see that, you know, she's she's just human like everyone else. And she's trying to do all she can at the end of the world. Yeah, I think uh, the the important thing that Miguel doesn't realize, you know, about sarah is that she's suffering too but he you know is almost offended that she can kind of build up a wall and do what she needs to you know when he's clearly going through a lot yeah like he says everybody's collapsing except her which isn't necessarily true she's just got a better poker face everyone is dealing with the situation in one way or another they're all coping in different ways and sarah's is just to take it head on and kind of push her emotions further down and kind of focus on work and kind of focus on leadership and doing everything she can to make sure the operations at the base run smoothly. Yeah, we get a shot here of a little makeshift cemetery too. And we come to learn that there's a new grave and it's someone named Major Cooper who was clearly in charge of the soldiers. So the person in command has died. And so that leaves us some unknowns. And then it's here that we get some cool existential questions that John's character presents where he's of the opinion of what we're doing here is bullshit and we should just go find some place to call our own and make the best of what life we have left, which, you know, he's dealing with a lot of people who are, were career people before and they're still trying to be career people now. They're trying, it's like the greater good versus self-preservation. Yeah, like I said, John is a realist and I think he understands just the gravity of the situation at hand and that it can't last forever and that, you know, the support beams are going to start falling sooner or later. And yeah, he would rather leave now and 
preserve himself and, you know, make something of the little life that they have left. And we'll get to see more into John's psyche a little bit later. You know, Sarah even, you know, calls him out for it. Like, you could do that, too. Like, you could run away and leave all this behind. And John responds back like, yeah, I could do it even if we weren't in this situation. Once underground, we immediately get introduced to two more soldiers. And these are more integral soldiers to the story. It's Steel and Rickles. And I just wanted to discuss them, too, because... They're both just the last kind of people you really want to be in this situation with. Very arrogant. They're both loud mouths. They're having like too much fun. You know, which I guess in a way they have safety. They're soldiers so they know how to protect themselves. They have their beard. They have their smokes. And they have life. And I guess you got to appreciate that. And that's one thing is where this movie takes place even the appreciation that we have safety in life is starting to drift, you know? Very stark contrast to the team we just met on the helicopter. You know, they're very loud. They're very brash, like you said. They're dealing with their stress in a way that you can is just uh, kind of have fun with it. But they're definitely getting, they're definitely having a little too much fun. They, they have this guard up, I guess, you know? Nobody wants to really admit how stressful these times are. Are. Yeah, so they are going to take Miguel and Sarah to round up some dumb fucks, as they put it. I like that the, they call zombies dumb fucks. And what we see is deeper into the cave system they're in. They've built this large corral where in the caverns they have zombies and they're using them for the science team. And they've got to get a few more. And Sarah doesn't want them to take Miguel because he's collapsing. And still makes the point, like, we don't have anyone else... She tries to get help from John or Bill, who they just walk away, so she goes. And I really like this part. I like the shots when everyone's watching the zombies approach through, like, cracks in the wood. You can see Miguel is not completely there, and I thought there was a funny bit, too. They have Steel up top kind of yelling to attract the zombies, and he makes this joke about how he's got the biggest dick in the caves, and... He turns to Sarah and he's like, I don't want to excite you in front of your boyfriend. And she hits him with, you're incapable of exciting me other than as an anthropological curiosity. And when he asks Rickles what that means, he tells him, it means you're a caveman, you're a throwback, you've been down in the caves too long. And Rickles jokes that it's okay still, all throwbacks got big dicks. And I like how Sarah holds her own here because she looks down at Rickles' crotch, like, as if to say, you sure about that? And still even gets a huge kick out of that. I liked the camaraderie there, and I just like the fact that, you know, she holds her own with these two dickheads, and then the zombies do get there. Steel and Rickles are very aggressive. They're dealing with this stress in very aggressive ways. And Steel is like, you know, he's howling almost like an animal to bring these zombies towards them. And Rickles is just in the background laughing, you know, like a hyena, just totally, you know, inappropriate for the situation at hand. And you just really see the the regression that has kind of hit these soldiers. But yeah, I love the back and forth between... Everybody here, this movie has great dialogue. It's written very well. It's funny. So they trap a female zombie. And what they do is they push her into the corral. And then they have a leather strap that they use another stick to hold on to. And Miguel is charged with holding this stick. 
And as he's struggling with the zombie, he drops the stick, which starts to approach Rickles. And the situation looks all kinds of bad until Sarah jumps in and grabs the stick and Rickles regains his composure. But it draws Steele's ire to Miguel because obviously Steele and Rickles, they're almost like the Fred and Barney (laughs) of this cave bunch. (laughs) You know, they really have a bond and Steele jumps on Miguel and is yelling at him for screwing up and almost killing Rickles. And he's dangling him over another zombie they have in a corral very precariously. And I wanted to discuss something here because... This movie was made in 1985, and we live in a very different culture now, and this film features quite a few scenes of dialogue with heavy racism and racist terminology, and I think it fits the narrative in the sense that it still shows that humans on the brink still view their divisions. So... They still can't just accept one another for who they are. We're the last survivors, but they still use racism. They, they're they still racist to a degree. And it's just, I thought it, it it's an interesting uh, point being made, I think. Yeah, definitely. Like even in, in the apocalypse, like even when pushed to the brink, like we still can't set aside our differences and attempt to move forward. Everyone is just letting the stress get to them and everyone is regressing and one way or another and trying to do their best but yeah steel is like the perfect example of like what not to do in a survival situation i felt it necessary to address it you know because like i said we live in a different day and age now i think if you or i were to even quote some of the dialogue in this movie fraternity would be scrubbed from the internet so we've addressed it we've given you our perspective on it and we're just gonna move on from it it's there throughout the film but i don't think we need to bring it up again yeah i think it's there for a reason but i think the movie touches on deeper tones than just like surface surface level racism i think you know there's a lot more to be said than just that but it is there to like yeah like you said show that even when the odds are against you like we can't come together and you know if we can't live together we're gonna die alone here either way the dead fucks are captured and brought to the labs and then we get a brief scene of sarah preparing a sedative for Miguel. And I like how we aren't really sure how much time has passed before we join this story. You know, how long have Sarah and Miguel been involved? We get little hints, like when they were at the corrals, she noticed they hadn't filled anything out since July. And so that tells us they've been there for months, probably years. We see all that there's like six graves on the surface. So clearly some time would have had to pass for that many people to pass away. But we're just never quite sure how long they've been there. Did you get any sense of how long they were supposed to have been down here? Well, I like that it is ambiguous because, yeah, it could be years, it could be months. But I think the point is that, like, put humans in a situation like this and it it is only a matter of time before society starts to uh, erode and the worst part of humanity starts to come out of people. So, yeah, I don't think... There is an answer. It could be anything. It certainly sounds like they could be there for, could have been there for at least a year and that it was just thrown together so quickly that like how much supplies could they really have had? So it could be shorter, you know, Sarah does say later, like, you know, it was thrown together in a matter of days. So how much do they really have here at this base? But yeah, it's, it's up in the air. It's up to interpretation, which I think is really cool. It could be, could be shorter, could be longer. Yeah, so Sarah dopes up Miguel against his will and 
clearly their relationship is on the rocks. And then we're going to cut to a scene where we meet our human antagonist named Rhodes. We're in a main hall of the area. Like, it's kind of the mess hall in the conference room all wrapped into one. And there's another scientist down there named Fisher. And he's complaining about just the situation at hand, the, the conditions of the equipment, not being able to get anything really done. And it becomes immediately clear that Rhodes is just a hard-nosed prick of the highest order, right? With Major Cooper out, Rhodes is has taken charge and he's playing by his own rules here. He's... At his wit's end with the scientists and, you know, he doesn't hear their complaints because Fisher is asking for better equipment and that all their research gets contaminated and they can't, you know, provide them with the answers that they need. And Rhodes just, he doesn't care. Like, he's just saying, like, show me results or basically we're done. We're done here. Like, you know, we don't need you. You're the ones that need us. Yeah, eventually Sarah walks in and she even says we need each other and Rhodes says, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I think you need us more than we need you. And I like he kind of flexes here. He's wearing this big jacket and he takes it off and he's got his two pistols on. And you can tell. I mean, to me, I thought Rhodes came off as someone who was probably always in the chain of command, but never in command. Probably a brown noser, clearly a lifer, you know, and now he's got that command. He's got some little guy syndrome going on there and just. Like we said, everyone's stressed out now at this point, and he's ready to blow everything up. But he's in a helpless situation, as we'll find out in another meeting down here as well, so there's not much he can do. And Sarah starts to talk to them about Miguel, like taking him off of active duty, and Rhodes just starts shooting her down, and eventually transitions into being very unprofessional and perverted with her. And I thought it was messed up because... Despite his unprofessionalism, as she walks out with Fisher and tells him, fuck you, you can tell it burns his ass, you know? And it's like, dude, you started it, and you still are the one more offended. Yeah, you see Rhodes's facade break, you know, if only for a split second. But yeah, it definitely confirms that he isn't the hard and badass that he really thinks he is. And yeah, it's so interesting that you say, like, he probably was a brown noser and he's never been, like, number one in his life because as soon as the chance comes with cooper gone you know rhodes jumps on it and you know he he becomes this authoritarian figure at the base and like everybody else he's stressed too but he's dealing with it in another way that you can is like power and ruling over people and controlling people you know these soldiers they're uh dealing with the stress in the worst possible ways as as we'll see after that scene Sarah makes her way over to Dr. Logan's laboratory and everyone's dubbed him Frankenstein. And it's immediately apparent why he's dubbed Frankenstein, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, he's just covered in blood, working on like two specimens at a time, jumping back and forth. He's cutting up bodies. He's, he's severing uh, internal organs. He's testing out theories. He's doing it all, so... Frankenstein definitely earned his name here, which, as we go on, I think I'm just going to refer to him as Frankenstein and not Dr. Logan. I don't know if you agree <laughs> with doing that or not, because... Sounds, sounds good to me. I mean, that's what everyone calls him, pretty much. Except maybe Sarah. <laughs> you know, just a side note, too. I noticed none of the soldiers ever use Sarah's name. They always call her Lady, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, we get a, uh, a nice jump scare here, too, that introduces Bub. And Bub's all like... 
That's my bub. Where we get our first look at bub here in a jump scare, no less. You know, and we don't we don't quite know what to think of bub here at first. He kind of shows. Yeah, you can tell there's something different about this zombie from the jump, but yeah, we don't know anything really yet. Yeah, we don't know exactly what. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up that they they yeah they never do say Sarah's name. You know, just just another lack of respect, and along with the racism, you know, you you've also got sexism here, and nobody wants to look past their prejudices. And definitely another reason why Sarah probably always has her guard up. You know, once Doctor Logan or Frankenstein, as we're gonna say. Once he sees Sarah, he starts rambling on about his research, and there's a lot of sciencey brain jargon here. And basically, what we'll learn is Frankenstein is working on a way to domesticate the zombies. He's figured out that they work on like some primordial instinct in the brain, and he's working on either bypassing that or working on a way to reward and coax the zombies into doing what he wants. The zombies are running purely on instinct. You know, you remove all their internal organs and they still crave humans. Awesome, awesome zombie, right? The one with all the severed organs on the slab. Frankenstein puts his hand in front of his face and the zombie's trying to nip at it, but he can't reach it because he's restrained on the <laughs> on the table. That's great. You know, it shows a, like a almost a lack of care on the Frankenstein's part for his own life. You know, he's just so deep into his research. Yeah. Frankenstein is so deep into his research, he's basically oblivious to everything going on outside the lab. Sarah's kind of chastising him about everything and attempting to explain how dire the situation is actually getting outside, you know? We also see this really cool cadaver that is basically just a brain, like the front half up to the spinal cord of his head and neck and face has been ripped off. Oh man, that thing looks really nasty it's like pulsating (laughs) he's got it wired up to electronically and he's making it move and do things and then we find out that that is actually major cooper frankenstein had the soldiers bury a specimen and he thought it best to use cooper for some experiments because he needs all he can get right yeah and i'm Sure, you can learn more on a fresh specimen, and you know he, uh, yeah, a lack of uh, respect for the dead here with Frankenstein. And I think it's interesting too. They show another specimen on the on the floor, and Sarah asks what was wrong with him, and Frankenstein replies, "Oh, he was too rowdy. I had to, I couldn't handle him. I had to get rid of him." And soon that will be a, a kind of a major plot point that they're running low on specimens in the corral. And there's no guarantee that once they run out that, you know, the soldiers are going to be willing to even go out and round up more on the surface. So Frankenstein is really, you know, time is against him here. And Sarah tries to tell, tell him that, but, you know, he's, he's kind of not listening. He's kind of just so caught in his research. You know, he, he's determined to show them results from, from what he's doing. What do you think about the fact that Sarah does not tell anyone about major cooper and what frankenstein's done she is a scientist and i think she cares for frankenstein even though he's clearly on edge and clearly you know off his rocker a little bit and i also don't think she respects any of the soldiers very much because they haven't shown any respect to her or her team so it's like why would she even 
tell them. Not to say that she isn't kind of shocked at seeing Major Cooper's body there and and to learn the fact of what Frankenstein has done to it. You know, she isn't happy about it, but you know, deep down I think she has a care for Frankenstein and the work that they're doing. I think it's kind of messed up, but it just illustrates how we're dealing in shades of gray here and she mentions to Logan once she does find out it's Cooper, she says, do you have any idea what they would do to you or do to us? So I think she's she's fearful of the reprisal and she knows it could very well endanger her. But like I said, it just shows how no one is innocent here. We're, we're dealing in shades of gray, you know, and I really liked that. And then we're interrupted by the vivisected zombie. It breaks free of the restraint and begins to sit up. And we get this great shot of all the severed organs spilling out of his torso and splattering on the floor. And then another excellent gore shot right after when Logan dispatches it with the drill right into the forehead. With no second thought, he just drills it right in the brain. And Sarah is clearly like disgusted at what she just saw and witnessed. You know, she's, you know, heaving, dry heaving. (laughs) And yeah, Logan just uh, does it with no thought. Yeah, I also like how Bub is standing in the background kind of watching on and it's almost like he's kind of put off by the dispatching of the zombie but he doesn't really react but amazing tom savini special effects just we're still towards the beginning of this movie and it's only going to get better and better oh yeah the main the main show hasn't even started yet but yeah i really love when yeah he he disposes of the zombie and bub is watching and he's he's kind of confused but he almost understands what just happened and it's like he almost doesn't want that to happen to him so we're gonna cut to a meeting earlier Rhodes had called for a meeting and we joined the meeting back in the main room when Steele and McDermott are kind of arguing about McDermott's failure to raise anyone on the radio I really like how Steele lays into McDermott and causes him to snap and he's raising his voice and then catches himself like even he's losing it because McDermott is probably the most calm outside of John, probably because he's drinking so much. They even mentioned he's a heavy drinker and he should lay off the booze and get to work. And I just really like that. Steel, like, uh, you know, lay off the fucking booze, old man. But I think Steel is drinking there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think they're all drinking or smoking, you know, they're off basically. So they're all getting in the party favors for sure. And then Rhodes interrupts and he starts talking about how he thinks this is a big waste of time. I think he puts it like, are we all just jerking each other off around here? And eventually Sarah's kind of had enough and she goes to leave and Rhodes tells her, we're not done here and get back in your chair or I'll have you shot. And Sarah turns around and questions him like, are you crazy? And I love Rhodes' response here when he says, are you? Because I just told you I was willing to shoot you and you didn't get back in your chair. (laughs) I I really like that part. Yeah, Rhodes is uh, really going to showcase here that he is in fact serious and means business because he tells Steel, you know, shoot that woman. And Steel makes a joke. He points a finger gun at her, uses his fingers. He says, bang, you're dead. And the soldiers (laughs) are all having a laugh. But then Rhodes pulls out his gun on Steel, (laughs) which shuts Steel up real quick. So Rhodes is basically forcing Steel to shoot Sarah. 
And I like when John gets up and tells Sarah in no uncertain terms, shut up and sit down. Because he can see the gravity of the situation where Sarah is still trying to act like the tough person she presents. But it's getting a little over her head right here. And Steele goes to raise his gun and John goes to draw his. And Sarah diffuses the situation by screaming no and returning to her seat. And I love this bit because we see the battle lines in the group are starting to be drawn. And then Rhodes keeps flexing on the group and he makes some good points. You know, all good villains think they're doing right. You know, when Fisher says we don't have to be subjected to your tyranny, he makes the point who's being subjected to what? You know, we're the ones who are dying and he's just looking out for his best interests and he's telling them how he wants to get out of there. But then enter Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is able to have a battle of wits with Rhodes that really kind of shuts him down. Yeah, Rhodes is saying, like, you know, I think we should just get out of here, you know, and leave you guys behind. I'm going to take my men and, you know, hightail it. I like how he says, leave your highfalutin asshole friends here to rot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Frankenstein shows up and is... Quickly schools Rhodes saying, you know, where will you go? You know, you, you, you're outmanned. Something crazy like, you know, some crazy like 400,000 to one or something. And you don't have enough ammo to shoot them in the head. You know, the time to do that passed. We let them overrun us. The zombies are now, you know, they, they have the upper hand in the situation. And you can see on Rhodes' face that he knows Frankenstein is telling him the truth. And that, you know, Rhodes definitely knows this. And Rhodes is kind of, you know, pushing his power around and trying to control the science team. But, you know, Frankenstein just doesn't care. Like, he's just throwing it all back in Rhodes' face. Yeah, despite what a dickhead Rhodes is, he he does demonstrate some good diplomacy. You know, he's listening to what Frankenstein is saying because Frankenstein is saying all the right things. And Rhodes is calming down until Frankenstein starts talking about how inadequate their equipment and is and how worse it makes the situation and that just sets Rhodes off again with you know McDermott doesn't have good radio gear and now y'all are telling me y'all don't have the shit you need he's just at the end of his rope because they're losing men they barely have ammo and that's when Sarah makes that point like this operation was thrown together really quickly and Rhodes says I'll end it in minutes I'm ready to end this now and again Frankenstein is able to counter with where will you go? What will you do? And Sarah makes a point that there's got to be other survivors in Washington and maybe they'll come looking for us because we don't have communication with them. And Rhodes kind of looks around and he's thinking it all through. And I like how he tells him, you got a little more time, but I'm not going to tell you how much, but you better start showing me results. And I like, he says, don't piss me off. <laughs> and he, he tells the group and he's looking right at Sarah. He tells them, if anyone fucks with my command, they're going to get court-martialed and they're going to get executed. And we end on this great shot of Rhodes looking over to John and John just kind of wiping his chin and smiling. And that's basically the end of the meeting. But no, I love that. And the ending shot with John just kind of like sitting there you know, absorbing the situation, and then he just smiles, you know, there's nothing else to do but smile at what, what all just went down. Yeah. Do you think Frankenstein ever got any food? 
I sure hope so, because uh, he deserves it, you know, messing with all that gore and viscera. But yeah, I really love this scene. Because um, yeah, you do see a bit of humanity still left in Rhodes in that, you know, he is willing to listen. And I don't think anyone here is in the really in the wrong, because yeah, like, the science team doesn't have the stuff that they need to do their best work. And they're not wrong for asking for more. But at the same time, like, you know, what is Rhodes to do with those complaints? You know, there's not much he can do. He doesn't have the manpower to, you know, go and get the equipment he needs. They're running low on ammo. So Rhodes is kind of like, you know, make do with what you have here. And yeah, it is a totally kind of gray issue because there really is no right answer. And the cracks in the foundation begin to form here after this meeting. And things are going to get a lot worse before they end up getting better. Yeah, I like as everyone is exiting the meeting, Sarah is kind of doubting that Rhodes would have done it. And John points out, no, he would have made Steel do it. And she mentions he can't be that inhuman. And John responds with a brilliant reply stating he is human. And that's what scares me. And I love that point made in the film because I think all great zombie films, the human drama is first and the zombies are secondary. You know, it makes the point that despite being in a zombie apocalypse, man is always the master of his own destiny. It's when we get to the worst shades of our humanity where everything falls apart. We will always be the creators of our own downfall. And we're starting to see that here. Yeah, I love that line. You know, he's human. That's what scares me. The blatant verbal portrayal of the theme, major themes of this movie is that, you know, when humans are pushed to their limits, they have to make a choice on how to deal with that stress. And Rhodes has obviously chosen power and fear. And, you know, the the more corrupt he kind of becomes, he's kind of bringing his own death closer, not only to him, but the, the people at the base. And John makes and John and Bill make the point that, like, you know, we're safe because he needs us. But everyone else, like, you got to start, like, really looking out for yourself. Yeah, I love how he says that, too. Later in the night, we find Sarah sitting on her floor trying to fall asleep. And then she looks up towards Miguel, who's laying in bed awake. And he begins to sit up. And then we see he's been vivisected. And his incisions open up and his guts spill out on the floor just like the, the zombie in Frankenstein's lab. But then we get Sarah waking up. And it was just a nightmare again. So when she wakes up, Miguel is sitting in bed and he's finally seen the cracks in her armor. And I hate the fact that he rails on her for it when it's like you're kind of stating the obvious and being a real dickhead about it, you know? Yeah, he's kind of got this I told you so attitude with Sarah. And she's like, so what? If you don't like it, then just leave. There's a real lack of communication with Miguel. Like I said, he doesn't want to admit that he is suffering and that he needs help. And I, I think he has this thought that like, you know, how can you help me if you're suffering just as much as I am? You know, he kind of sees everyone at the base as kind of hopeless and sees their situation as hopeless. Like Miguel has kind of lost all hope and is almost, you know, past the point of even being helped. Yeah, he even says earlier, he was like, I don't need your help. and I don't need anyone's help. You know, he's, he's really sunk into himself. And so him and Sarah basically break up here and she ends up going out into the hall to get some medicine. Here's a commotion. 
then there's a weird bit where all the soldiers are like wrestling and she gets kind of trapped in the dog pile. Bill is refilling his flask and he sees this and he grabs her and he ends up taking her to have a few drinks and they go out to where him and John live, which is out in the caves in a trailer they've dubbed the Ritz. And we're about to get to uh, more philosophical discussions here that I think are really interesting. Definitely. I just wanted to say I really like the scenes between Miguel and Sarah. You really feel the emotion between them. And these are two characters we have barely seen, you know, interact all that much. But there's just something there that just feels real. You know what I mean? Yeah, their relationship does feel lived in. Yeah, just to see it all fall apart is really sad because clearly, like, Sarah is upset after he leaves and she kind of has to, like, gain composure. And that's when she leaves and goes takes the medicine. And I I think she gets caught in that scuffle. I think that scuffle is really an interesting choice. Again, it's showing, like, these soldiers almost displaying, like, animalistic traits. Like, they're just fighting for fun, like, for no good purpose. (laughs) Yeah, I was really confused by that bit myself. So we're at the Ritz, and John kind of turned their backyard into his own kind of personal little paradise. He's relaxing, he's having a drink. Yeah, I like here that Sarah questions John about their lack of assistance with the group, despite them benefiting from the privileges of being a part of it. And it's funny because earlier at the meeting, Rhodes had stressed his curiosity about whether the science team was just, everybody's just jerking off here. And then we come to find out that John has no trouble telling Sarah that that's exactly what him and Bill think is going on. It, they are just jerking each other off because he doesn't believe in what they're doing, right? Yeah. He kind of tells her that there's no point in doing this, that even if you could find out, like, what would be the point? You know, all these records are down here and you have all this recorded history of humanity. You know, he makes the point like what like and what are you going to do? Just make more history and put it down here for for who to read? Like what what good would it do? So John has really kind of accepted the fate of humanity and the fate of his life. And he's just kind of going going through the motions. And he's, you know, he's seen the cracks begin to unfold. And he tells her, like, you know, we should just start a new world, you know, find more people and go find an island and just go stay there and tell them never come back to the mainland and never dig up these records. You know, whatever, John believes that whatever got us to this point in history is just not worth recovering. Because like you said, humanity, you know, we are going through a zombie apocalypse here, but humanity is ultimately the downfall of themselves. It's it's a very interesting contrast because you have two very different personality types here where Sarah's this workhorse who's stressing the fact that what she thinks what she's doing is all there is left to do. But John, on the other hand, like you said, he's convinced that the old world is not only dying, but it's dead. And he believes they should just abandon it and start anew. It's I think it's a very interesting dichotomy. And you could say like Sarah's approach is noble and altruistic and John thinks that's foolhardy and pointless. But you can also say John's approach is kind of selfish and a pipe dream. Like like Frankenstein stressed, where are you going to go, you know? And I'll say his idea is bold and well-intentioned. But again, like, is it even attainable? It's It's just a fascinating conversation between two people who have basically been living in death shadow for way too long at this point. Yeah, I really love, you know, John kind of opening up and telling Sarah what he believes in. And, 
you know, what he thinks of of their work. But yeah, it's like, you know, is what John says even attainable, like you said? Because they are so outnumbered. So is, yeah, is he just dreaming as well as these people? Is Sarah in the right because she's trying to solve the problem? Or is John in the right because he's just trying to get away from the problem and just forget about it? You know, neither of them are, you know, right. And it really just emphasizes the gray morality that's in this film. As John so eloquently puts it, we ain't ever going to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So the next day, Sarah's back in the labs working. She has a brief conversation with Fisher and then Frankenstein shows up and he's going off about the domestication and reward. And he ends up taking them to see Bub. And this is our first real scene we get with Bub. I like when Frankenstein uh, enters the room with uh, that Fisher was in and, you know, he's convinced that reward is the key and he's going off on his theories and he, he looks uh, as inspired as ever. And, and as they're leaving, the zombie starts to make a ruckus and he and Frankenstein looks back and he scolds it, you know, and he says, you sit in here in the dark and you think about what you just did. And uh <laughs> He comes off like kind of crazy, but you know, you're almost so impressed by his work that you kind of forget that, you know, how he's coming off. And as we'll see, yeah, here in a minute, we're going to see the fruit of his labor in Bub. Yeah, the zombie in Fisher's room is a great contrast with Bub. You know, when Frankenstein enters, Bub doesn't react like a zombie would. And he places some household items in front of Bub and he goes back out. And they're kind of watching him. I think there's a toothbrush that Bub discards. And then there's a razor. And he starts to kind of use it on his face. And it's just showing that through his interactions with the items, they're discerning that the zombies have recall of the pre-zombie life. And even with a book, they have the book Salem's Lot there. And Bub opens it. And Frankenstein's excited. Like, he remembers. He remembers everything he did before. And... He goes back in the room and I like Fisher makes the point to Sarah here that he saw a zombie trying to drive a car down Independence Avenue. So what's the point? No, there are a lot of little moments in the like in the beginning opening scene with in the city. It's like these zombies. Yeah, they almost are just kind of like a reflection of what they were when they were alive. So it's it's like calling into question like how much is really like recognition here and how much is Frankenstein's work. But regardless, Bub is obviously impressive because, you know, as Sarah says, it's not what he he does, but what he doesn't do. He doesn't get excited when anyone enters a room, which, yeah, is is progress. And it is interesting. And clearly there's something going on here, you know, that Frankenstein's work is working. Yeah, as Sarah and Fisher are laughing about the fact that Bub doesn't view Frankenstein as lunch, Rhodes and Steel enter, and Logan invites everybody in, and they do another experiment with Bub using a telephone, and he holds it up to his ear, and Frankenstein implores him to say hello, Aunt Alicia, and Bub's like, Alicia! <laughs> and this kind of startles Rhodes. Rhodes is looking over a clipboard, and he smashes it down, and when he does... Bub notices Rhodes and abandons his toy and stands at attention and salutes. Yeah, and Frankenstein tells Rhodes, you know, return to salute, see what he does. But clear, obviously Rhodes refuses. He doesn't see this as a human or, you know, anything intelligent. He just sees it as a walking, you want me to salute this walking pile of pus? <laughs> right, and I love uh, Frankenstein responds with, your ignorance is only exceeded by your charm, Captain 
And so, yeah, Rhodes refuses to do the salute. So Frankenstein asks Sarah for her sidearm and he takes all the bullets out and they give it to Bub because they want to see what he does. What did you think of this bit? Oh, I love this scene, man. I love when Bub takes the gun and he's looking at it, examining it. And then that recognition kicks in and he cocks the gun and then he aims it at Rhodes. Immediately Rhodes is on edge, but you know Frankenstein has to say, like, it's unloaded. He can't hurt you. And then there's this great tension between Bub and Rhodes and a bit of foreshadowing for something that'll come later. And then Bub pulls the trigger and is clearly disappointed that it was unloaded. Rhodes is looking like he's about to put one through Bub's skull, but Frankenstein steps in and, you know, won't let him take his boy. And we immediately cut back to the conference room and Rhodes is none too pleased with what he's just witnessed. He's questioning, is this the progress that is supposed to blow me away? What are we doing here? Teaching him tricks? You know, he's just completely unsatisfied. Yeah, and uh, can you even say that Rhodes is really wrong here? Because, I mean, Bub is like, you know, what an achievement to condition a zombie not to immediately give in to its urges. But how realistic would that be to do that to an entire population of zombies like it just doesn't really make sense when you break down the logistics of it and i don't think uh frankenstein has really thought of that as as impressive as his research is you know the scale of things is just too much right and we get a great bit of dialogue with frankenstein he's visibly shaking and we see he's clearly on the verge of a nervous breakdown and he makes this rambling speech about civility and reward and the consequences of a lack thereof and it's just another brilliant critique within the film of the film you know you can apply what he says here to the characters and it just really is another revelation of the themes that we're presented with yeah i love you know up to this point frankenstein has kind of appeared as i don't want to say the most put together but almost like uh the most focused of the group But yeah, clearly, you know, when he's saying civility must be rewarded, yeah, he's he's clearly shown shown shaking. And we see just as much as anyone else that Frankenstein is suffering, too. You know, he's he's dove deep into his research and everything, but uh, he's almost at his wit's end as well. You know, if he didn't have his research, he would he would not be in a good place. And he's but he's driven, you know, he's got this higher purpose of, you know, cracking the code and helping humanity. For sure. Yeah. So we're going back to the corrals and shit is about to hit the fan. This is this is where the the movie takes a turning point and everything after this is going to very quickly start to collapse. Right. Yeah, Steel's leading the effort to corral some more dead fucks and he's got Johnson there with him who's already holding one of the zombies on the end of the pole and Miguel's back in action and Steel is handing him another pole and kind of questions him like you got this? And Miguel replies in the affirmative, and you can tell Steel isn't sure. And as the zombie is struggling at the end of the pole, the, the strap around the neck that Miguel's pole is attached to ends up breaking, and it sends the zombie rushing after Miller, taking a huge bite out of Miller's neck. And as Miller is bit, he discharges his gun and ends up blasting a bunch of holes not only through the other zombie but he ends up killing johnson in the process now miguel's freaking out screaming this ain't my fault this ain't my fault 
Sarah's there and she ends up killing the other the zombie that bit Miller and Miguel in a fit of rage charges the other zombie and they both fall to the floor and the zombie ends up biting Miguel on the arm. You know, uh, I love Miguel screaming like I didn't do it, you know, cuz it isn't his fault that the uh the uh, collar around the around the pole broke on the zombie. I mean, he he was doing his job. It's just his equipment failed. Right. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it was an accident. You know, it wasn't deliberate or anything, but Steele is just upset. He goes up to, uh, what's this guy's name? I think this was Miller. Miller. He goes up to Miller and Miller's pleading with him. Like, I don't want to become one of them. Like, you know, a- asking Steele to put him out of his misery. And, you know, Steele has to take the life of one of his friends. And, you know, we see a bit of humanity here in Steele. You know, he clearly is upset. That he had to do this to one of his comrades. Yeah, I thought this was well done. Steel is very emotional. You can see he's tearing up. And yeah, it, it really hurts him to have to end the life of one of his fellow soldiers. There's still a heart beating in there. <laughs> yeah, he's not totally lost. Still human. Everyone has a little bit of humanity left in them. But it, the question is how much. So Miguel... He's flee- he fled the scene and Sarah was chasing after him. And we join John and Bill at the Ritz and they can hear some commotion and they see Miguel approaching. And John ends up s- stopping Miguel and Sarah quickly knocks him out with this huge slab of rock to the back of the head. And Sarah immediately jumps into action with taking John's machete and cutting off Miguel's arm and then getting ready to cauterize it this was i always remember this scene as a kid for some reason because it's just brutal seeing them cut off his arm and put the flames to it and he's screaming yeah there's no hesitation to it you know like there's no build-up to the arm cut off like it's just immediately like she swipes his arm and pushes it through the bone like back and forth and to get the cut through oh man it just it just stays with you and yeah uh bill and john they kind of pull their weight here John, you know, he stops Miguel and lets Sarah whack him with a with a rock <laughs> so they can hold Miguel down. And then Bill, he gets the gasoline to help uh, Sarah with the torch so she can cauterize his, his arm. So they pull their weight here. Definitely. Unfortunately, uh, Rhodes, Steele, and uh, Rickle show up. Right. And Steele wants to kill Miguel. He knows he's been bit. And Sarah's, like, refuting it, saying... I got to the infected area in time and still threatens to gun down Sarah if she doesn't move. And both sides end up drawing guns on one another again. And it's funny because Rhodes, again, kind of plays diplomat here as Steele says, we got to kill him. I like how Rhodes says we'd be doing him a favor. Sarah is saying she got the infection. And I like how Rhodes says that's bullshit. I've seen a thousand of them. And if you want to keep him, whatever, but he's not coming back to the complex. So John and Bill say they'll keep him out there with them. And this is where, since they've all got their guns drawn on each other, like John says, it's becoming a habit. Rhodes makes the point that don't expect any more from me and my men. So we talked about the battle line starting to get drawn earlier, but right here, they're established. Yeah, can you even say that Rhodes, like, is wrong? Because, again, like, 
he sees the situation for what it is. Like he's not convinced that Miguel isn't going to turn. And how can you really know that you even got cut the arm off in time before the infection took over? And like, you know, is that even a correct theory? Uh, I really love this standoff here because, yeah, you have these battle lines drawn and you have the soldiers and you have the science team. And we're literally in a cave, people standing off, having a disagreement. And Sarah is holding a torch. You know, I, I saw like visuals of like cavemen here. I don't know if you picked up on that, but I thought it was really interesting that, you know, we're we're really regressing here as humans. You know, we're literally in a cave with torches yelling at each other over, you know, a disagreement. Nice observation. Yeah, I was even amazed that the soldiers were even back at the corrals at this point. And, you know, shit hit the fan and it was nobody's fault. Like we said, it was a equipment failure. But it just pushes Rhodes' point of why are we risking ourselves for you and it's over. You know, especially now that y'all are drawn down on us. So just forget it. And he has to tell Steele, you know, let's get out of here. We got better things to do. I guess drink beer and smoke some weed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's here, too, that we get after they leave, we see Sarah really break down. And, you know, I think she's been really keeping in her emotions throughout the movie. You know, like everyone needs a good cry. And I think it's less for men than women, you know, and she finally just gets to let out all that anxiety here. Yeah, we see uh, Sarah finally break down and, you know, all the stress that she's been keeping inside finally comes out she in some ways is as broken as miguel you know but uh she's just been in, able to handle it in different ways and i think you know everyone is kind of as broken as miguel it's just how you choose to deal with the stress it's easy like uh john said earlier it's harder to keep it inside than it is to just let it out right so they're gonna keep miguel at the ritz and Sarah makes the point that she has to go back to the complex and get some morphine and get some supplies. So Bill's going to go with her and John's going to wait there with Miguel. And then we cut to Frankenstein's lab again. And Sarah and Bill are rounding up supplies in there and Bill's kind of snooping around. And he ends up finding a little tape recorder and hits play. And on the tape, we hear some really strange audio of Frankenstein. And it just shows... It reveals how over the edge he is. Like, he's kind of snapped at this point. Yeah, he's talking to himself. He's talking, like, he's talking to, like, his mother. Like, he's having some sort of breakdown and having these repressed memories of his mother kind of come up, which I think maybe implies some sort of motherly issues, some sort of abuse in his life. I don't know. But it's interesting because Frankenstein is shown to be a maternal figure to Bub and to these zombies. In the in the next scene, we see him go back to Bub, and he he's like, "Mother's here. Mother's proud of you." You know, it's almost like he's picking up the traits of his of his of his mom. So yeah, we we see uh, Frankenstein is not as well kept as he'd like you to believe. He is struggling here. Yeah, Bill notices some blood on his fingers, and he turns on a light, and then. He unveils Frankenstein's latest experiment, and we see it's the severed head of Johnson. And it's wired up sort of like the Cooper cadaver was, and it's just a head, but it's got motion. It's somewhat alive, I guess, through electrical impulse. Yeah, he's still got his brain. 
So still kicking. Yeah, it's a very, ugh, it's gruesome. And Sarah's horrified and she goes to shoot it. And Bill stops her because he's aware that if she shoots her gun, it's just going to attract Rhodes and the men. And I like Bill makes the observation here. Like, I'm beginning to think we better take that helicopter before somebody else does. So they start to flee the complex and they run into Logan who doesn't see him and they follow him. And yeah, he does go back to Bub and they're doing a bit where he's teaching him how to use headphones and a tape recorder. But then we learn what Frankenstein meant about reward. Yeah, Frankenstein has this bucket that he gives to Bub and Bub starts digging through it and we and we see that it is human flesh that Bub is being rewarded with. And of course, none other than Rhodes comes up as soon as as this is all happening. And then he, he takes Frankenstein and he's like, what is that? What are you giving him? And they find that Frankenstein has been keeping the bodies of the dead soldiers in a freezer and feeding them to Bub. Like Rhodes put, he, he's become a butcher. And once they see the dead soldiers in the freezer, they push Logan into the walk-in and he starts pleading with Rhodes and Rhodes just cuts him down like full clip just machine guns his ass talk about a waste of ammo man yeah I thought you were low on ammo my dude I wanted to discuss here like Logan kind of deserved this or Frankenstein kind of brought this on himself don't you think yeah he's not in the right like you can't just disrespect these these soldiers that have you know protected you this entire time and kind of given you the freedom to do your research and it's kind of a spit in the face to Rhodes and his team when they just see their their fellow men just sitting in that walk-in yeah dismembered having to suffer this fate of being food for zombies which everyone hates especially Rhodes and his and his men so Rhodes has his men strip the rest of the science team of all their weapons. And I like he grabs Sarah and he's like, those are my men in there, you know, which again shows his humanity because those are his men. And he's really distraught over this situation. And now we're really reaching the beginning of the end. We cut to John back out at the Ritz and he can hear the group approaching and he finds a little spot for cover and to get a drop on him. He confronts them, and Bill and Sarah are being restrained by the men, and Rhodes has Fisher, and he's got one of his prized pistols point blank at his head. Rhodes is uh, basically telling him, like, this is over, like, and he's telling John that you need to fly us, and John responds, you know, we all can't fit in the helicopter, and Rhodes is like, yeah, that's why I'm... I'm taking you and my men and that's it. And I'm leaving everyone else. And then John refuses. Rhodes puts one through Fisher's brain with no hesitation. And yeah, this causes Sarah to lose it. Yeah, he just executes him on the spot because he told John, you, me, and my men are leaving. And if you give me any shit, I'm going to kill this guy. And so Fisher's dead. And once Sarah starts screaming, they're right by the corrals and... They throw Bill and Sarah into the corrals and John starts pleading with Rhodes to spare their lives in exchange for the chopper ride. And Rhodes reminds John the chopper can't hold us all. And John really exhausts all efforts here to bargain for Bill and Sarah. But Rhodes just refuses him at every turn until John tells Rhodes he won't fly the helicopter and they'll have to kill him first. So... Rhodes pulls up the uh, gate 
for the corrals and Bill and Sarah are forced to flee because they're being approached by all the zombies in there. And Rhodes is basically going to use steel to beat John into submission and agree to take them where they need to go. So during all this commotion, everyone has kind of forgotten about Miguel. And as Steel is beating up John, they're alerted to the sound of the elevator. And this needs to be investigated. And then we do get a brief shot of Miguel making his way up to the surface. And we start to cut between a lot of things here. Like, this movie gets really busy at this point, because we are approaching the end now. The last uh, 20, 25 minutes of this film are really rapid fire. And it's almost like our main characters kind of take a backseat to the mayhem that is about to unleash on the soldiers and everything here at the facility. There's a lot of moving parts for sure. And we even we cut to a brief scene where Bub accidentally frees himself from his chains. Then we do rejoin Sarah and Bill making their way through the zombie infested caverns. And we get a great kill here. The shovel through the mouth decapitation. What did you think about this? Hey, another shovel kill. Right? Right? <laughs> I didn't remember this one at all. And I was like, hey, maybe uh, Reanimator isn't so unique after all. <laughs> no, that, this is a great kill. I I love when uh, he, he throws the top of the head away and they, they make a run for it. And you still see the head like moving its eyes like it's still alive because it didn't get through the brain. <laughs> right. It's still alive. Just the top of the skull just upside down. Yeah, it's a great kill. Great effects. And then we also get another kill here. with It's just like very basic, just a skull smashing by a large plank of wood. But I just love the blood splatter there. So Steele and Rickles went off to investigate the elevator. And John had managed to knock Torres out before Steele started kicking his ass. And Rhodes kind of kicks at Torres to wake him up. And it allows John to sneak Rhodes, take him down, and just double fist KO him. And I love right here, John draws the two pistols and puts them to Rhodes' head, but then he looks over at Fisher's corpse and John just can't betray who he is. So despite Rhodes kind of deserving it at this point, he can't bring himself to kill him. Yeah, I love that John is able to keep his composure when he easily could have taken Rhodes' life here, but he chooses not to. He makes the choice to keep his humanity and he doesn't want to lower himself down to Rhodes' level. You know, he really makes a, an important decision here that, you know, would have inf affected him his entire, the rest of his life had he pulled that trigger. Yeah, I really love that bit. And then we cut to Steel and Rickles. They go to the elevator and the control box has just been gutted. Like Miguel's just ripped it apart. And I love how Rickles is just like, fix it, fix it. And still has to stress, like, what the hell do you want me to do? Yeah, Rickles is, like, talking nonsense. Just like, fix it, fix it. Like, we got the book right here, fix it. And Steele is just like, what is it you think I can do? <laughs> There's nothing to fix, asshole, right? <laughs> so Rhodes and Torres both wake up, and they find that John has run into the caverns after Sarah and Bill and left them both unarmed. And then Bill and Sarah are alerted to John's presence because they can hear the gunfire. And I got to say, John has been using some cheat codes, dude, because it's headshot after headshot with these <laughs> zombies for him. From far away, too. And he's dual wielding. Right. He's got <laughs> accuracy maxed out. 
He does put one round into the chest of the zombie that spins him around, and he's like, when he spins around, he's facing the camera, and then he gets one put through his head. And then I called this one zombie here, like, the big goober zombie, because he's, like, coming <laughs> after John. He's just like, <laughs> it's just great headshot gore there. I love that kill. Yeah, we get some fun action here in the, in the caverns. Yeah, the only thing I'll say about the cavern scenes is they're very dark. And I remember on VHS, it was horribly dark, especially when you're watching it in full screen. So you kind of lost some corners and didn't get to see some of the creeping that you do in widescreen. Yeah. But yeah, it's still great and effective. Yeah, I can imagine it would be hard to see watching this on a on a little uh, CRT like <laughs> where'd the movie go? <laughs> <laughs> right there was a shot i thought about where you see the shadow coming from the right corner of the screen and i'm like you know some of that was cut off you know but then we cut back to the surface and miguel is standing at the gate where all there's a horde of zombies there and i really like the shot through the gate looking at miguel standing there and you can see all the hands of the zombies fidgeting about the great shot and miguel is basically going to sacrifice himself here is it a sacrifice or is it a suicide or is it selfish? <laughs> that is the question. I actually, in my notes, I put sacrifice or suicide question mark because besides Sarah, Miguel was kind of a loner and the soldiers treated him like shit and he's going to die. It is basically like a selfish suicide because he's just going to take everybody with him, right? There's no guarantee that Sarah or anyone are going to escape. I think he's just... Yeah, he's just like, you know what, like, I'm taking this whole base down with me, like, I, he's just had it with humanity and just living, so I think it's kind of selfish, but I think that's more interesting to me that it isn't, you know, a sacrifice, that he's just doing this because, because he just wants to, like, he just wants to end his life, but he just wants to take everyone with him, you know, I think it's a really interesting puzzle piece that, you know, sets up the ending of this film. Yeah, it's interesting because this bit is so integral to the end, but there's so much going on that I don't think you really dwell on it too much, you know? Yeah, it's easy to like just brush this scene aside for everything that came before it and after it, but it is really important. And Miguel is still an important character in this film, an important player, and he's just kind of shows that when you don't let your stress out and admit that you need help, that you're, you know, it takes a toll on you as a person. And he just doesn't want to live anymore and has no care for life, I don't think. Yeah, I love that shot when he's looking through the gate and all the zombies are there. And he just sees himself, you know, as dead, just as them, you know. He has no, no will to live anymore. Yeah, he opens the gate and then he leads the horde of zombies on a chase. He goes to the elevator and gets ready to press the plunger. And he waits for the zombies to surround him and start munching down on him. And once they're all on the elevator, he hits it. And below, Rhodes and Torres have caught up to Steel and Rickles, and they're all just standing there looking at the helplessness of the situation until that elevator starts coming down and they see just the mass of zombies coming down to them. I love, too, uh, when the zombies are hoarded around Miguel and biting him and he's screaming. Like, he is, he, he sheds a tear. He is crying when this is all happening. So it. It's also like, how much does he regret? How much is uh, he sorry to about everything that's happening? Miguel is a very important character to this film that I think is a, 
is very understated. But yeah, the zombies come down, Rickles and, and Steel and Torres and Rhodes quickly realize the situation and Rhodes makes a run, run for it first with no regard for his team. <laughs> yeah, he totally deserts them, right? <laughs> yeah, he gets the little golf cart and he, he speeds off. <laughs> <laughs> The, the rest of the team are like, Rhodes, what the hell? Like, you just left us, you know? Because this whole time, he kind of has been sticking up for his team, you know? Yeah, you know, an hour ago, he saw his team dead in that walk-in. And now he's just like, screw you guys. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, he peaced out on him. It, it definitely comes back to, you know, him just flexing more than actually being a badass, you know? He... he when the chips were down, he was only in it for himself. So we also see that the corral, John has left the corral open. And so zombies are pouring in through the other end of the complex. And now it's zombie party time. And the complex is just getting overrun. And before things get too crazy, we get a scene where Bub finds Frankenstein's corpse. And he's trying to tell him, my chain's broke. <laughs> I need to be rechained. He's trying to tell him, uh, uh, not a not a bad bub, not a bad bub. <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy here because Bub shows a recognition of death and then mourns, and I thought that was very interesting. It's a great scene. Yeah, I love the display of emotion when he does realize that Frankenstein is dead. You know, he's swinging his chain around and just moaning, and you know, you can almost hear it in his voice that he's he's, he's distraught. This whole movie is about like the loss of humanity and people, but Bub is the only character that kind of gains his humanity back. And I think it's just a such an achievement that, you know, not only a film, but a whole trilogy of films can make you afraid of these these zombies. And for this film to turn it on its head and make you feel empathy for Bub, for a zombie. Is just such a so well done, and it's I can't state it enough how much I love the character of Bub and everything that he goes through. Yeah, he very well. That's so well said, and he very well could be just the greatest zombie ever put on the silver screen. It's hard to argue if you think about it. Strictly talking about like favorite characters in this film, like I definitely gotta you know put Bub in there. Right on, and then we end our sequence with Bub with him finding the science team's discarded guns and he arms himself and now we get to our victims because the complex is just completely overrun and the first person they get to is torres he's running across these stacks of pallets and he ends up getting trapped on one of them and you see the zombies just scratching and clawing at his chest and one zombie pierces his eye sockets with his fingers and just pulls at his head and it's sickening because he's kicking and screaming as his head is ripped from his body. And then they have this effect where his screams just turn into these really eerie, high-pitched wails as his vocal cords rip and tear. Oh, it was it was very disgusting and shocking, this one. Vividly remember seeing this kill for the first time when we watched it, you know, way back then. And this is the one that stuck with me because of the vocal cord stretching and it raising. Like, the screams that come out of them are just haunting. Oh, it's just unnerving. Such attention to detail, you know? It's one thing that it's like a zombie ripping your head off. It's another thing when you hear somebody screaming and 
the cause of his vocal cords being stretched cause his his voice to go higher in pitch like it's just haunting like i said incredible special effects so well done and again like it's a great touch that his legs kick throughout so up next is rickles and he's over by the corrals surrounded and he even comes across the zombies are already eating fisher and he kind of goes kill crazy here and he's just shooting indiscriminately and his reaction to death is just he falls into like hysterics he's laughing and almost enjoying himself until he eventually does get taken down and he manages to shoot one more zombie while he laughs and screams and the zombies start just ripping him up and you see one like dig its finger into his eye socket and kind of gouging one of his eyeballs out he gets his fingers bit off just oh these soldiers are really getting torn apart here yeah uh the soldier deaths are very cathartic (laughs) you know they've been these macho assholes this entire time and to see them really get what's coming to them is it's very rewarding but yeah we see like not only does his eye get like ripped out but like the skin on his face gets like ripped and like you see underneath his skin and like his eyeball is protruding oh it's like you know they spared no expense when uh doing these soldier deaths yeah we get two bits one after the other of just fingers or eye socket fingering and it's terrible (laughs) like i really hate it and i love that rickles is just laughing chooses to deal with it with hysterics so fitting that he's just laughing through his death yeah still manages to fight his way back into like the main complex area he's unaware that it's overrun too because of the corrals and once he gets into the halls he ends up running in the bub and bub without hesitation fires on him and forces him into one of the labs and he's kind of got the drop on bub and he's waiting to kill bub but this distracts him from the fact that there's zombies already in the observation area of the lab and one pounces on him and bites him on the neck and as he stumbles backwards he sees them all filing in and he kills a few more zombies And he's basically trapped and he ends up deciding to kill himself. He takes his pistol and he makes the sign of the cross, sticks it in his mouth and pulls the trigger. And this kill, it's not even a kill, it's a suicide. But this always stuck out to me because when he pulls the trigger, the blood splatter on the wall is incredible. And then just the way he's a heavier set guy, he's probably the biggest guy in the movie. And the way his lifeless body slumps to the floor is brutal and it just it looks real yeah it does look really it's really effective his suicide and it's so fitting for steel the probably you know the most macho soldier of them all realize the situation he's in and just take his life you know you almost feel like a little sorry for him but then you remember how much of an asshole he is and it's uh yeah it's brutal it's very realistic like you said i can't think of a more realistic suicide in a movie like when i was a kid this always shook me it's striking imagery for sure we cut back to the caverns john regroups with bill and sarah just in time and he tosses them some guns and we get this action shot with them all in poses as they mow down this group of zombies blocking their path that was it was kind of like a throwback to dawn of the dead but i might have been able to do without this shot (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's fine. It, it it serves its purpose. I don't have a problem with it, but it's, uh, yeah. The, like I said, I think uh, our main characters here, like 
not necessarily the main focus of what's going on. Like the tensions are a bit low, but we do get a, a good bit of uh, tension when they when they make their way to the ele- a, a different elevator and it's out of order. So they start climbing this ladder, and John's the last one to go up, and he gets grabbed by a zombie, and he isn't able to shoot it, and Bill saves him. Yeah, they've they've been making their way towards this silo. And like you said, the elevator doesn't work and they're climbing the ladder. And yeah, there is that bit with John. And I got to admit, I got a little misty eyed when they start making their way up the ladder to freedom. You know, I was like, all right. And the music is really good. It's got a very interesting theme. And uh, they're basically on their way to the surface. And we cut to Rhodes, who we find in the armory, getting some clips for a machine gun. And he walks out of the room and he comes face to face with Bub. Rhodes is desperately trying to load his gun, but Bub has the upper hand and shoots him in the shoulder. Clean through, too. Yeah, and Rhodes is stumbling down the hallway, trying to get away from Bub. And he's trying to make his way to this door that he thinks is maybe safe. Bub gets another shot on Rhodes. This time, it's through the leg. So now he's up against a wall, limping towards this door. Yeah, I love the way he's dragging himself here, like just every effort he can to get through and he's coaxing Bub to keep following him like he's still arrogant. Yeah, I love that Bub is almost like towering over him as this figure, like the, like nothing better than a, the image of a zombie holding a gun. Yeah, it is, it's definitely striking. Rhodes makes his way to this door and he opens it up and is met with none other than a room full of zombies ready to just eat him whole. And so Rhodes realized pretty quick that he screwed and Bub gets one last shot on him through the stomach. Rhodes collapses and he gets overtaken by these zombies. Yeah, I like when he's falling. He's like gasping for air. You can see the look on his face. He just can't believe this happened to him. And the zombies are starting to surround him and Bub's watching on. And as they begin to feast on Rhodes, Bub gives him this mocking salute and it just stings Rhodes. And the zombies literally rip Rhodes in half and some zombies are dragging his lower half away and Rhodes is still alive. And as they start to pull his innards out and eat, Rhodes yells, choke on him, choke on him. Um, (laughs) then he just dies even in death he still is such a prick that he has to get one last quip out (laughs) right like it's still arrogant to the bitter end (laughs) (laughs) yeah quite a fitting death for Rhodes. definitely i like that bub does not partake bub watches on for a moment and then just walks away to what ends we don't know and then we get this great montage of just it's a zombie buffet down there now and every room has zombies just eating on flesh was there anything in this montage that really stuck out to you the thing that stood out to me is like the zombies are almost like fighting over the meal you know (laughs) as animals would like they're fighting for parts of the body and like, you know, having some scuffles between them. So I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, I love this little montage of them, you know, throughout this facility of once of what once was a team of people. And now it's just completely been taken over. You have to think these zombies are now trapped down there forever. <laughs> so this is <laughs> almost true. like their last meal, because when is anyone ever going to be back down there? And yeah, there's just 
tons of munching down on human body parts. I really like the one zombie who has a piece of arm and he accidentally bites into the watch. And then you have another zombie eating steel and she spits out his dog tags because it's all tangled up in the pieces of meat she's got. Good stuff. Really, uh, they're really flexing with the gore here, you know? Because <laughs> now we have reached our end and we find John, Bill, and Sarah on the surface and they're about to make a desperate run for the helicopter because there's a zombie horde on the other side of it that's kind of approaching. So they make a run for it and Sarah reaches the door and opens it and suddenly a zombie pounces on her from within the cabin, causing her to scream out in shock. But then she wakes up and we find that it's been another nightmare and she's sitting on a beach with John fishing and Bill sitting in his own little area feeding the birds and Sarah pulls out this little makeshift calendar and it's kind of her last bit of the old world that she's still not letting go of and she marks down another passing day and that's our movie. Yep, that's Day of the Dead. I think it's interesting that uh she's still having nightmares, like she's still obviously traumatized by everything that they've gone through. But the movie does end on a hopeful note, you know. John, Bill, and Sarah did escape and presumably they found an island that's habitable and they're gonna make the best of their future and maybe, who knows, find more survivors and, you know, build a community. But, you know, in a hopeless movie, I think it was interesting to end it this way with hope for the future and hope for humanity and kind of saying, like, if you choose to, you can make the best of a situation, no matter what. And, you know, you can maybe see this as kind of hokey or whatever but you know i really do think this is a to end it on a hopeful note is is admirable i don't think it's hokey at all and i love the fact that they present us with a bit of finality you know because we see they've escaped this scenario but we don't know what the future has in store for them and i also really like the makeshift calendar because you know john had talked about you know, leaving the old world behind. And it just shows Sarah's connection because what does time even matter at this point? And she's still keeping track of the days. And I just really like that last shot of the calendar. Yeah, like you said, she's still holding on to a little bit of the old world. But at the same time, you know, it, I think she's embraced that there is hope for the future. And yeah, I don't think it's hokey at all. I'm just saying I think so if if someone would have would say that they don't like this ending, I could understand why. But personally, I, I I love it. I love the way the film ends, and it is open to interpretation. Like how how much survival can they really do on this island? Awesome. Well, you know, I love 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 this movie, and this is the first movie we've covered that you really like. So, how did this watch through affect your feelings on it? Yeah, I think this movie has a lot of layers and a lot of deep intricate themes about humanity and what makes a human and like i said you see the erosion of human morality but at the same time you see humanity in a zombie in a creature that isn't supposed to have humanity or feelings inside of them so i think it just asks a lot of questions and it's really satisfying and it doesn't it never gives you an answer you know it never says like is what frankenstein doing the right thing is was Rhodes right in you know this act of self-preservation it kind of leaves that all up to you which i really love and like i said earlier this movie uh definitely has earned its ranks above one of my favorites of all time not only horror but just in general 
you know, I love this film. I really don't have any complaints about it. I think it's fantastic. I think it's underrated. Like, I love Dawn of the Dead, but Day of the Dead is just my personal favorite. Yeah, mine too. Awesome, man. So you ready to have some fun and get to our top three zombies list? Well, do you want to do the kills and the uh, scene first, and then we'll do the zombies last? Okay, yeah, sure. Let's do it that way. What was your favorite kill? All I have to say is Rhodes. You know, you really don't have to say anything else. <laughs> right, right. You, you, that's all you have to say, but I will say, you know, you get Bub's revenge. I love his arrogant defiance all the way to the bitter end. And it's the only time I can think of where someone is ripped in half while still alive, getting eaten by zombies, and just choke on them. It's iconic. <laughs> that's all I can say. Yeah, before I watched the movie, I knew about the, the Rhodes death scene and his iconic line. And, you know, even knowing it, it still is very effective when it happens. So how about you? What's your favorite kill? My favorite kill? You know, I would love to go and say Rhodes, but I got to go with the, uh, the Torres kill with, with the head torn off and the, and the throat getting stretched and the vocal cords raising in pitch. Like I said, it's just a haunting sound. And that always stuck with me back when I watched it. Till now, you know, I still think it's like one of the most impressive kills ever. And it just shows the creativity that you can really have in a horror film. Yeah, that's an excellent choice. It's gruesome. And, you know, the more you praise it, it makes me think about how it uses all the elements from sight and sound. It really is firing on all cylinders and nails. It achieves what it sets out to do. So, yeah, that's a great choice. Favorite scene? My favorite scene is the first meeting that Rhodes calls just because, you know, this movie is very heavy on dialogue. It has a lot of drama. And I remember being like a 12 year old kid. Sometimes you're not into that. You know, we always talk about kids wanting the goods, you know, but even when I was a kid, I found this scene very engrossing, which I think is just a testament to how well acted and presented it is. The tension is incredible. I love the standoff with Rhodes threatening to kill Sarah. I love the battle of wits between Frankenstein and Rhodes. I just think it encapsulates everything going on in the movie so well. And it's just a brilliant sequence, I think. For a scene that in a horror movie that's all dialogue, you can't get much better. It's a great scene. I, I, I love it for sure. And I really love that, you know, here's this group of people in this like gigantic hall. But here's like 12 people trying to figure out like how to survive and what to do. Yeah, definitely. What was your favorite scene, Danny? For me, I got to go with the first time that Frankenstein shows Bub to Fisher and Sarah. I just love seeing Frankenstein interact with Bub and seeing Bub like have this recognition about his former life and the implications of that. And then I love when Rhodes comes in and has this standoff with Bub and has great bits of foreshadowing. And yeah, there's just, like I said, my favorite element of this movie is the like humanization of a zombie and like the questions that that asks. I just love Bub. I just can't, I can't say it enough. I just love Bub. I, I really love your astute observations on that character too. So that's awesome, man. Love it. Here's our, our big finale is our three favorite zombies. So we're going to go with our number three. Like I said, we don't we don't know like what each other picked. We just told each other, like, pick three zombies and then have them ready for the episode. So you want to start us off, Sean? Sure, I'll start us off. 
My number three is the ballerina. Are you familiar with the zombie? Yes, I know which one you're talking about. I uh, Go ahead. <laughs> it, well, it's a very blink and you miss it, but she's right there during the final horde when Rhodes runs through the door, or maybe it was when Steel went through the door. And I just love the costume of the ballerina, and I love the fact that one of her legs is kind of dragging and she's... She's just hunched over in this zombie but ballerina pose and one of her feet is even still standing up on its toes. I just <laughs> it just I, I, I just loved it. Yeah, you love I love these little bits of recognition with all these zombies. Like they still remember what they used to do, you know? It's great. Yeah, there's there's one not on my list that I'll mention that I was thinking about too, where it's in the very beginning where there's like a housewife zombie and she's still dragging like a basket of laundry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I which that, one you're talking about. Yeah, I thought that was funny. So how about you? What's your number three? My number three is the clown zombie. I'm sure you caught awesome. him. Awesome choice. <laughs> he he shows up when uh when Steel breaks through the door and lets all the zombies in. They show a quick image of all the zombies coming in through that door. And you get a good image of this clown zombie. And I don't have any like special reason that I chose him. I just think it's cool that there's a clown zombie in this film. <laughs> yeah, he's in a few shots and he definitely stands out. I love when they're walking into the hall and there's a great shot of him because he's kind of towering over all the other zombies. But yeah, that's a great choice. I, lo- I love the clown zombie too. He didn't make my list, but I do love the clown zombie. What's your number two, Sean? My number two... <laughs> is the bride did you notice the bride uh i know remind me what scene she's in she's on the elevator when it comes back down she's never a featured zombie but she's in a few background shots once they've invaded the complex and it's just a zombie wearing a bright a bridal gown and she's still got the veil over her face she never really does much she's always just sort of standing there but what really attracted me to it is i think putting a zombie in a bridal gown creates a story in my imagination that isn't there you know like what happened you know clearly the zombie outbreak affected her wedding and here she is still in her gown from her greatest day that turned out to be not so great i just love the fact that putting a zombie in a bridal gown creates a story that isn't really there you know what i mean absolutely yeah it says it says a lot with just a, a little bit of imagery and storytelling, which is what this movie does great because, yeah, like if a zombie apocalypse did happen, like you wouldn't have everyone wearing normal clothes, like people would be dressed up. I think that's what makes me like the clown zombie so much is that this dude was like on his job, he was working and then he died. Right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the groom is there too, but you know, a suit just isn't as memorable. <laughs> as a bridal gown all right that's my number two so what's yours my number two um i don't know what to call this zombie i'm gonna call him the 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 moss uh, algae zombie (laughs) i know exactly who you're talking about (laughs) uh, i think he's the one that bites steel if i'm remembering correctly he's it he's it he he comes into the room when steel is firing off his shots yeah but here's this zombie in this like stained green suit so you know the zombie has like been sitting in some like murky water so much so that he's like started to have like algae and like grow on him and he's like got moss on his face 
and he looks mildewy. He looks just like rotten. And, you know, it's so interesting to have like this kind of not common color on a zombie. And I just love that he's, yeah, it just made me think like, where was he sitting? You know, like, where was he at? (laughs) Yeah, I love that zombie. That's an excellent choice. I actually almost, if I had a top five, he'd probably be in there because he does, he stands apart. And it is it it is all about that green color, like the algae and the moss growing on his face. And he's really rotten. Like, yeah, that's an awesome choice. All right. You're number one, Sean. I'm I'm excited to hear it because you're I'm very pleased that our, our two our two picks so far have not uh, coincided. They haven't been the same. Look, I had to stick with the basics for my number one. It's Dr. Tongue. <laughs> Because well, I guess I should say too that Doctor Tongue is my number one. I, if I had said anything else, I would be lying. <laughs> Ag- agreed, agreed. Like you, as much as I enjoy going for the deep cuts, and I really do love those zombies that I pointed out because those were the ones that stuck out to me the most. But Doctor Tongue is the freaking title card, man. Like, there's a reason they put him on that because. If you want to step outside the movie even, like, that's not even a person in a costume. That's a freaking animatronic puppet, and it looks so incredible. Yeah, there's a reason he shows up for the title card, and clearly he's, like, stuck with people because I know he's gotten, like, figures, you know, before. Like, there's Action Factor Tongue. And like I said, anything having to do with, like, facial injuries is just great. Like, you see his tongue moving around, and it almost looks like it's, like, going to fall out. At some point, like it's barely hanging on in his mouth. Yeah, plus there's a story in his injury, like you don't know what happened to this zombie. Yeah, maybe he killed himself or he got shot, you know, who knows what happened. And yeah, the fact that it's an animatronic too is just so impressive, like I love that. I had a feeling that we we were both going to pick Dr. Tongue as our number one. I almost literally like was like, I don't know if I want to pick it because it's so obvious, but I'm really glad that we both picked it. Yeah, I can't say I'm surprised, and I don't think we're wrong. I mean, it's just, we're just being honest here. It's a great zombie. Outside of Bub, it's, it just sets the tone for the movie, too. Like, you see this incredible special effects work, and you're like, holy shit, what am I in store for? Yeah, because it is so impressive, but it is, like, you still have so much to see in this film. You know, all the deaths all the rest of the zombies like you just think about how how many extras are in this movie like it's it's crazy definitely so that's our top three zombies that was very fun and maybe we'll continue to do that if a a good zombie movie presents itself for us to check out what they managed to do (laughs) yeah i'd love to do something similar to that because it is fun to uh kind of appreciate the smaller details in a film like like this you know especially when you know they can so easily be overlooked you know, and it's easy to look at like the obvious gore and appreciate that. But, you know, I want to show my love for the moss algae zombie. I want to figure him. So anyone's listening, I'll, I'll spend good money on that. That's awesome, man. All right. So that was Day of the Dead. That was the beginning of our October horror movie celebration. We appreciate and are humbled and honored by the fact that you're celebrating horror in the month of October with us. And stay tuned for next week because we're coming right back at you with another all-time great horror film to dissect and celebrate. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everybody. 
Have a great night.